Let's read together how what Jesus did was once and for all and doesn't need to be repeated. It's a long reading, so I hope you'll bear with me. I have my drink to keep me going. We're going to read together from Hebrews chapter 10. And we're going to be reading from verse 1 uh, right through to the end of verse 25. So if you want to follow along, I'm reading from the New International Version, uh, from Hebrews 10, starting at, at verse 1. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they have not stopped being offered? For the worshippers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me with burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. First he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, here I am. I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest has offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my law in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin, for sin is no longer necessary. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have 
confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened up for us through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Again, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And thirdly, let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Amen. And may God bless his holy word. In October 1957, when I was just three, the USSR launched Sputnik 1. And for those of you who are history buffs or science buffs, this week has been amazing as we have gazed back through to the moon landings. But it started as part of the Cold War. When Russia put that first satellite in space that circled the world, Sputnik 1 sent fear through the West. The Americans particularly thought, we are vulnerable and we're going to have a nuclear rocket or bomb land on Washington or in the United States. So there was fear from that time forward. It was at the time of the Cold War and this was the start of the space race. And it wasn't just about putting a man on the moon, but it was about protection and showing who was the most powerful and technologically advanced. In 1961, it was a young John F. Kennedy, President of the United States, who asked the Senate and Congress for funds to put man on the moon. It was not welcomed by some. 58% of the people in America at that time in 1961 were against it. Only 42% were in favor. But within a year, public opinion had turned around. And John F. Kennedy made his famous speech about we choose to go to the moon not because it is easy, but because it is hard. These words signified that America would be devoting billions upon billions of dollars to the space race. 400,000 people are estimated to be, who have been involved in some way in getting the first man onto the moon. And so... I've brought some slides that you'd probably be very familiar with. The crew of Apollo 11. 
the three members, and we all know Neil Armstrong because he was the first man to put his foot on the moon. And we know Buzz Aldrin, who was with him on that module. But of course, there was Mike Collins in the command module who never set foot on the moon, but who circled and orbited around the moon. And without him, they wouldn't have got home. And then there was the launch. And I can remember as a 14-year-old taking photographs on my 35-millimeter camera, black and white photographs of the TV screen. How sad is that? And I'm standing there, this 14-year-old, photographing a TV, a small black and white bush television. Some of you won't even remember those days when we only had two channels and we thought it was great to have two channels, right? Now you've got 139 and none of them are worth watching. (laughs) But we took photographs of that because we knew it was a momentous occasion. And so the mission proceeded. Four days after they took off, man put his foot on the moon. An amazing achievement. A photograph taken by Buzz Aldrin of Neil Armstrong. But before man put his foot on the moon and after they landed, there was a time when the module was sitting there on the ground. And there was a bit of time for them to do some of the preparation before they would open the door and walk onto the moon. And we now know that Buzz Aldrin had with him a communion cup, some bread and some wine. This is a photograph of the actual cup that he took with him. He brought it with him because he was given it by his own congregation. And he asked permission to take it with him. And I'm sure you've heard the story's been told this week a number of times in different ways. But before Neil Armstrong and Buzz actually stepped out of the module. He said, let's take a moment to reflect in our own way. Everybody in their own way. And at that moment, Buzz took out the bread and the wine and celebrated the Lord's Supper. He was acknowledging what God had done. And other people have said that the most important thing is not that man put foot on the moon, but that God set foot on the earth. And so as I read to you this morning from Hebrews chapter 10, I want to turn our attention away from the moon And to us and our relationship with God. I want us to remember what happened to the moon. I want us to remember that there was a particular problem. There was the cold war. There was the fear that I mentioned. There was a challenge that had to be met. There was a problem to be solved. How are we going to get to the moon first. How are we going to show our enemy that we are more powerful? That we can do more than them? That was the challenge. That was the problem that there was. And the United States 
made a plan. That plan involved a huge cost. There was a price to be paid. And there were people to be involved in all of that. But I want to talk about the other plans and problems and people that are involved. I want us to think about our world today. Because we have a problem. And it's called sin. And that's a word that maybe doesn't come easily to our lips today. Maybe it's easier to say that man and God are separated. But what caused that separation is sin. And it doesn't take us long to look at our newspapers or look at our television screens and see the damage that sin has done to God's creation. And to see the damage that sin has done to our world our communities, to the people in it. We have a problem. And at its root is sin. But God had a plan. God has a plan for the salvation of this world. Why? Because he loves it. John 3 and 16, such an easy verse to recite and remember but so important because at the heart of it is the love that God has for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son to save the world, not to condemn it, that whosoever believes in him would not be condemned, but would be rescued. You see, it's a rescue plan. The plan to put a man on the moon was a plan for discovery, for improvement, for technology. But the the plan that God has is a rescue plan. A rescue plan for you and for me. I had no idea when I was 16, 17 years old that Jesus was really alive. I'll be honest with you and tell you that I grew up in a family that didn't send me to Sunday school or any youth organizations. So I had no church background. In fact, I come from a Roman Catholic background. And some of my friends who were Protestants, and we went to the youth club that night to see what the talent was like. And they were carrying on and messing around while somebody at the front did an epilogue. And it was the first time that I had actually heard the words, Jesus is alive. And I didn't understand what he was talking about, but it made me ask questions. And ultimately it made me get a Bible and start to read John's gospel. And so we each need to realize that Jesus died for you and for me. He didn't do it just in some general, abstract way. But he did it personally. He did it individually. That his sacrifice was enough for you and for me. Now the writer of Hebrews goes into a lot of detail. And he's writing 
to a group of people (coughs) who were persecuted, where there was pressure on them to return to the Hebrew way, to leave behind this new thing, this following Jesus, and turn back to their traditional ways, to go back to sacrifice, to go back to uh, living under the law. And what this writer of Hebrews is really saying is that this annual uh, ceremony to cleanse the people of sin, the sacrifice of bulls and goats, is something that goes on and on and on. But with Jesus, he came once and for all. So in this passage, we have a perfect sacrifice. I have a couple of other pictures I want to show you. As we think about sacrifice, I want you to see this picture of this 44-year-old man. I don't know if you'll remember him. For a short time, his, his image is picture was on our screens last year around March time and his name is Arnaud Beltran. He was lieutenant colonel in the French gendarmerie. He was a part of a particular unit and an Islamic terrorist killed a number of people and took hostages and some of the hostages were killed. Three people had already died when Arnaud offered himself to take the place of the remaining hostage. The woman who was a hostage was released and Arno took her place. Very shortly afterwards, he was murdered and he became a dead hero of France. The image you have is of the president of France paying homage to a dead hero, to someone who had offered up his life to replace a hostage so that she could go free. Someone who he didn't know. He didn't even know her name. A nameless woman. But he willingly took her place. And in some small way, this captures part of what Jesus did. Because he stepped into our place to be a perfect sacrifice for us. He has to take our place. And when he hung on that cross, it was our punishment, my punishment and your punishment that he bore. This is what his sacrifice is about. It's why this is a perfect sacrifice and doesn't need to be repeated once and for all. So as we think about this this morning and what God is doing, he loves us and he sent his son to be that perfect sacrifice. Other authors and and better people than me go on to talk about a perfect priest. 
and how the priest who offered those sacrifices had to do it time and time again. But Jesus is the perfect priest who stands beside his heavenly father as our intercessor. We don't need anyone else. We have access through Jesus to the creator of the universe, to our heavenly father. And last of all, there's a perfect contract, or as it says in the passage, a covenant, a new covenant. Now, I don't know whether you know much about covenants, but since I became clerk of presbytery, and in my experience as a, within the courts, I had plenty of covenants and contracts that came across my desk. And only last week I had to seal a particular document to make it legal. I had to sign it, but I also had a seal where I impressed the seal of the presbytery on that document, making it final and legal. And so this passage talks about the seal of the new covenant being the blood and body of Jesus Christ. It's a contract that God has made with us. It's a promise that he will not break. On our side, we're a pretty poor risk because so often we fail. But from God's side of the covenant, we can depend on his word. He keeps his word. He won't let us down. It is a perfect covenant. Sealed in the blood of Jesus Christ. And so when Buzz Aldrin sat on that spacecraft on the, on the surface of the moon and broke bread and drank wine... He was remembering that covenant. And when you do it here in First Balamone, we celebrate and remember that we have an agreement, a contract signed in the blood of Jesus that will not be broken. As I come towards an end, there's always the, the what, so what bit of a sermon. So what? I've said all these important things, maybe surprising things or challenging things, but this is so what? You see, in chapter 10, verse 19, and then on to 25, there were three let us statements. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and the full assurance that faith brings. We can come near to God because of what Jesus has done. Our hearts are sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. We don't deserve to be free from sin. Nothing that we can do can make us right with God other than accept the gift that Jesus brings. No matter how good we are, no matter how kind we are, no matter how generous we are, 
that won't make God love us more or forgive us. Only by accepting the sacrifice of Jesus are we made right with him. Then other things start to follow. How we behave, how we use our money, all of those things fall under that commitment to Jesus Christ. How we live our lives in obedience to Jesus follows from that. We can't make ourselves right with God by our good works. And I know that for many, many people, that is still a great difficulty. I have had many conversations with Presbyterian friends and others as well about what it means to do good works. And we are called to do good works. But only because of our commitment to Christ. Doing good works will not make us right with God. But doing good works is what we are required to do. It is grace that has saved us, not our good works. And for many people today, that is very hard to grasp. There are two other let us statements. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. Are you doing that? Are you carrying out the encouragement that we're supposed to? Let us encourage one another. Let us spur one another on. I worked in an organization for 42 years where people were very quick to find when you made a mistake. If you got something wrong, it could have consequences for other people. So mistakes had to be avoided. And so people would go through documents very carefully to make sure the, the right sentence was written down, the right number of years. You didn't want somebody going to prison for the wrong time. You had to be very careful that it was all right. And if you got it wrong, somebody told you. I want to say to you this morning, I want you to encourage one another when you get it right. I want you to encourage your young people. I want the young people to encourage the older people. I had a wonderful elder in our congregation called George. And for many years, he was the person that looked after the covenants in our church. The financial covenants where people committed themselves to paying certain amounts of money. And they used to say that George was like an Exocet missile. You could see him coming, but you couldn't avoid him. And each Sunday he would have a list of people and he'd be there at one of the doors waiting for you as you came out to make sure that he had your signature so that he was able to claim the money on the covenants that you had made. But as he grew older, 
he no longer had that job. And in his 80s, he came to me as somebody who looked after the young people. And he said, Trevor, who's that? Who's she? Who's he? What stage is, is she at? Is she doing GCSEs? Is she doing A-levels? What school is she at? And so he began to build up a picture of our young people. And George prayed for our young people. He learnt their names so that he could say, Good morning, Jennifer. Good morning, Jeff. How you doing, Peter? How's it going in school? How you getting on? How'd you get on your football match last week? And the young people thought it was a little strange because nobody else did it. But George persevered. And our young people started to love George back. And so it became a mutual relationship where his interest and care showed in the lives of our young people. And they returned that love. So I encourage you this morning as First Balamone to find ways to spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Like ourselves, I see or hear that you have a food bank, that you're involved with CAP, you have street pastors, you have other organizations. Wonderful. It's great opportunities to show that God cares because you care as well. That's part of your job. So the, the important point for this morning is that you are encouraged this morning. That you are challenged. Therefore, let us... I know it's a holiday time. There are many empty pews. Let us encourage people. Invite people to be here with us. This is a good place to be. This is an important place to be for young people and for older people. It is a good place to be. So let us encourage one another. So I send you away this morning with a challenge. God had a plan to meet the problem. And that plan still stands good. There's still the problem of sin. You can see it in the world around us and you can see it in your own lives and the impact that it has had. But God's plan is for salvation. And the people who are involved in that plan, first of all, Jesus, but we are part of the plan. We have a job to do. There's no spectator's seats. If you were to go up the road this morning, you'd see tens of thousands of spectators at the open. And good luck to them. But they're not participating. Only the few that are actually playing the game are actually involved. But this morning, we are all participants Read chapter 12 of Hebrews. We're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. 
But we have to run the race. We have to get on with it. So I encourage you this morning. We are part of God's amazing plan. We have a job to do. We have a perfect sacrifice. A perfect priest. And a perfect covenant that God will not break. So I encourage you this morning. As you go out to serve him. With hope in your heart. With confidence in your heart. Knowing that you are part of that plan. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your plan that is made perfect in your Son, Jesus. Lord, bless us as we seek to serve you in the week ahead. Encourage us and challenge us, O Lord, that we would be brave enough, courageous enough to do new things, to witness for you, to act wisely and bravely for you, to be generous and loving and caring, to go out of our way to love others in the way that you went out of your way to save us. Thank you, O Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.